0: Can't imagine like going to sleep in my house tonight and not being able to sleep. You know, I think I would still be a little freaked out. But yeah, I think we can feel a little celebratory and
1: relief.
2: Residents whose homes were cut off by an avalanche near Eagle River assess next steps. From Alaska Public Media, this is statewide news on Alaska News Nightly for Monday, March twenty eighth. Good evening. I'm Lori Townsend. Also tonight the Sitka Sound Sacro Herring Fishery gets underway.
3: Everyone wants that first fish and so it's going to be you know, a matter of who gets them first.
2: Those stories and more tonight on Alaska News Nightly.
4: Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station.
5: Parents, did you know that one out of four Alaska high school students currently use e-cigarettes? E-cigarettes are easy to use and easy to hide. What teens breathe in and out from e-cigarettes is not safe. It contains cancer-causing chemicals, toxic metals, and nicotine. Nicotine can lead to addiction. It can harm brain development and hurt memory, learning, and attention span. Parents, talk to your teens about vaping. Visit livevapefree at alaskaquitline.com. This message sponsored by the Alaska Tobacco Quitline.
2: Alaska's political scene has been busy. The state Supreme Court ruled on redistricting last week, and the House plans to take up the budget in just a few days. Here to catch us up and talk about what happens next is Alaska Public Media and KTOO's Andrew Kitchenman. Hi, Andrew. Hello, Lori. So, Andrew, regarding the Alaska Supreme Court ruling on redistricting, could you please go over exactly what the ruling said and what the next step is?
6: Okay, so first, the biggest consequence is that the court upheld Anchorage Superior Court Judge Thomas Matthews finding that the redistricting board had violated the state Constitution in how it paired a House district that includes most of Eagle River with House District that includes the South Muldoon neighborhood to to make up a one Senate district. On the other hand, the court rejected Matthews finding. That there was a problem with the house district Skagway was placed in. Skagway had wanted to be in a district with downtown Juneau, but it will be with Juneau's Mendenhall Valley area instead. The only other change is that the court found a problem with which district the community of Cantwell was placed in. It basically said that Cantwell should be in the same house district as the rest of the Denali Borough, and not with the Atna Villages. Uh, The court said that the board's map for Cantwell wasn't compact and that the board hadn't justified it adequately. So now Judge Matthews will have to give the board an order. Um, The board may have to decide how many Senate districts it wants to rearrange to correct for the issue in Eagle River and South Muldoon. If all of Eagle River is kept in the same Senate district and both major pieces of Muldoon are kept in a Senate district, then at least four Senate districts will have to be rearranged. The upshot of all of this could increase the number of competitive Anchorage Senate seats. Under the original map, both Eagle River Senate districts were heavily Republican.
2: Really interesting. Thank you. When will we have a clearer idea about those Senate districts?
6: Well, first, Judge Matthews has to issue that order to the board. The board will have to meet and take action. And at that point, there could be one or more new lawsuits. Um, but if there aren't more lawsuits, then all of this could be resolved well ahead of the June 1st deadline for candidates to file for the election.
2: Well, Andrew, given the fact that other, a number of other Senate districts could be affected, if lawsuits do come and push past the 1st of June, what would that mean for candidates who want to get into these races?
6: Well, based on what's happened in the past, the Senate would use uh, the map that was current at that time. That is the time of the lawsuits. And if there has to be changes to the map later, those would go into effect for the next general election in 2024.
2: All right. Thank you. What other state political news has happened recently that people should know about?
6: Well, another piece of news is that Anchorage Democratic Representative Ivy Sponnells has tested positive for COVID-19, certainly not the first legislator to be in this position. Um, The timing is a little awkward because uh, the House majority only has a one-vote majority, and so anytime a member is out, um, that does affect the House floor sessions. Um, She tested positive on Friday, and she's isolating and expects to be cleared to be back on Thursday of this week. Since the House majority doesn't have any votes to spare, um, that's also when the floor debate on the budget is expected to pick up. House Speaker Louise Stutes reinstituted a mask requirement on the floor on Monday, but some members wouldn't comply, so she ended the floor session. We'll see what happens on Tuesday.
2: All right, Andrew, thank you for that update.
6: You're welcome, Laurie.
2: That was Alaska Public Media and KTOO's Andrew Kitchenman speaking to us from Juneau. It's been almost four full days since residents of Highland Road in Eagle River were cut off from the road system when a massive avalanche spilled down a nearby mountainside. The avalanche has made life challenging for the 150 or so residents who are stuck behind the 80-foot wall of snow and ice. But as Alaska Public Media's Lex Trinan reports, some also said today that the slide has reminded them just how lucky they are to have their neighbors.
7: Kelly Johnson is just returning from her first trip outside of her neighborhood since a massive avalanche blocked the road from her house on Thursday evening. To get out, she had to take a mile-long snow machine shuttle manned by a rotating shift of city parks and rec workers. They took her on a bumpy and narrow path through spruce trees so she could get to town and...
5: Stop our mail.
7: (laughs) Johnson is among those trapped by an avalanche that has clogged Highland Road, her and her neighbor's only way into town. They have the snow machines now and Johnson says actually she hasn't really needed much to leave her house because the community has banded together to help each other out. They've been dropping off food and delivering supplies to one another. Those with cars that aren't cut off by the avalanche have been offering to pick up groceries. With her power knocked out for days. Johnson even had a friend drop generators from a helicopter.
5: Landed right on South River Drive. It was something to see, let me tell you.
7: Johnson's house is only about 80 feet from the massif of snow that tumbled down from the area known as the Triple Valley. Without electricity, she's not ready to go back, so she's staying with her friend and neighbor Elaine Blocker. Blocker's house on the south side of the valley has electricity, but she's still cut off from town. That means her kids are taking the snow machine shuttle to the bus stop.
2: Yeah, you got to kind of time it
0: a little bit. Um, but yeah, no, they they rode across and it was a long adventure for them. And we'll see how long this continues for.
7: She's not dwelling on the extra challenge, though. Instead, she and many others say they're inspired by the outpouring of neighborly camaraderie.
0: Everyone here takes care of everybody.
7: Some residents also say they just feel lucky. Nobody was hurt in the avalanche, first of all. Some houses were damaged, but no one was staying in them. Houses were also spared on Sunday when avalanche experts dropped bombs in the valley to trigger additional avalanches while residents were evacuated. Dana Pruner was one of the people who was evacuated and watched from across the valley as helicopters dropped explosives above her house.
0: It was horrifying to to watch the whole thing happen and not know what was going to go on. And when we heard the news that everything was okay, it was kind of shocking because... I was really expecting more to come down, but...
7: She'd just hiked up the trail from her house in snowshoes. She's been staying with a friend who lives outside of the area that's at risk for avalanches. She's not ready to spend the night at her house just yet.
0: I can't imagine, like, going to sleep in my house tonight and not being able to sleep. You know, I think I would still be a little freaked out, but... um... Yeah, I think we can we can feel a little celebratory and relief.
7: Down the street, a longtime resident Ken Moon says he hasn't seen an avalanche this big since he homesteaded here in the 1960s. He says seeing the size of this slide was impressive and terrifying, but the experience of getting so much community support, plus living like in old times, has been kind of fun.
3: We were almost disappointed when the power came back on because we were <laughs> all set up with our sleeping bags and going to sleep down here with the stove.
7: He says now that they know everyone's safe, there's been some impromptu bonfire parties around the neighborhood. It's a good reminder, he says, to celebrate when you can. Reporting in Eagle River, I'm Lex Trinan.
2: A team of researchers have released their findings from an investigation into the Beach Road landslide in Haines. Investigators found the area is stable for now, but could slide again after another large rainstorm or earthquake. They presented their findings as well as recommendations for management approaches at a town hall last week. KHNS's Corinne Smith reports.
8: After an extensive investigation that spanned more than a year, geologists say loose, saturated soil and weak bedrock were behind the December 2020 landslide. Eight inches of rain fell in 24 hours before the catastrophic event that buried homes and killed two people. Engineer George McCann with the Oregon-based geotechnical firm Landslide Technologies says nearby areas didn't have the same issues.
1: The catastrophic landslide occurred where the hillside is weakest and the ground pressures are highest. It's like the perfect storm. Elsewhere, the hillside on either side, the subsurface materials are not as weak. Maybe the groundwater may have been the same. We don't know at the time, but at least we've seen the evidence that the materials are not as weak to the east and west of the landslide.
8: But he says the slope is stable for now.
1: If you just spread your fingers just very slightly to about like a tenth of an inch or so. That's the small amount of movement that's occurred over the past five months, so it's a very small amount of movement.
8: His firm, along with the anchorage based M Consultants, Inc., was contracted by the state to study the landslide. The multi-stage investigation involved calculating any continued movement, slope stability, water and debris flows, analyzing geologic hazards, and making recommendations for management. He says a major earthquake could present especially big risks.
1: Now, in December 2020, there wasn't an earthquake. There was not. Uh, but we are asked to study seismic events or earthquakes because this is a fairly active seismic area. And there is a fault area on the inlet to the south of this hillside.
8: McCann says large earthquakes are rare, but it could be hazardous for not only the Beach Road area, but other sloped areas as well.
1: These are like um, fairly infrequent events, right? So you could have seismic events that could have, say, a 500-year recurrence interval or a 1,000-year recurrence interval. But when they happen, they can have some effects. Now, it's not just Beach Road, right? So many areas throughout Haines, we've got these steep hillsides are gonna feel the effects of seismic events.
8: The engineer's report also lays out several recommendations to improve the community's response to conditions that make landslides likely. McCann says management could look like improving drainage in the area and monitoring rainfall during severe storms to determine whether residents should evacuate.
1: But as you do more monitoring, you'll figure out where is that threshold, at what threshold, of precipitation, would we become more concerned about it and maybe take more critical measures like advise people to not be in that area?
8: McCann and the team of researchers encourage the public to look through the findings and recommendations and bring questions for the team to the next town hall scheduled for next month. In Haines, I'm Corinne Smith.
2: Still to come on Alaska News Nightly, new investors in a Wasilla grocery store chain means expansion.
9: Folks should certainly expect to see more Three bear stores going up around the state of Alaska.
2: That's ahead. Stay with us.
4: Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station.
5: The COVID-19 pandemic has created unexpected financial hardship for many Alaskans. Do you need help paying your mortgage? You are not alone. Now there is help. If you own a home, you may be eligible for Alaska Housing Homeowner Relief. The program may help cover mortgage payments, property taxes, utilities, insurance premiums, and homeowner association dues. The last day to apply is Monday, April 4th. Learn more and sign up at alaskahousingrelief.org. This message sponsored by Alaska Housing Finance Corporation.
2: Independent Al Gross has announced plans to run for Alaska's U.S. House seat following the death of Representative Don Young. Gross's campaign says Gross will file as a candidate to fill the remaining term that ends in January and for a full two-year term beginning in January. A special primary and special election will... Side who completes the existing House term, candidates face a Friday deadline to file with the Division of Elections to run in the June 11th Special Primary. The four candidates who get the most votes in the Special Primary will advance to an August 16th Special Election in which ranked choice voting will be used. A handful of candidates have already filed and more are expected to. The Sitka Sound Sacro Herring Fishery opened on Saturday. Saners landed an estimated 450 tons of herring in one hour and 15 minutes of fishing in beautiful weather along the eastern shoreline of Cruzoff Island. The fishery moved into Hayward Strait on Sunday and was open for eight hours from 11 a.m. till 7 p.m. As of press time, the total catch for the day has not been published. Earlier in the week, there was some concern that diesel fuel leaking from a tugboat grounded about five miles to the north may have spread as far as Hayward Strait. However, southeast winds over the weekend may have prevented further spread of the fuel to the south. The state has set a record guideline harvest level or GHL for the fishery this year of more than 45,000 tons but that figure is considered to be both in excess of market demand and processing capacity. Matt Kinney is one of 47 permit holders in the fishery.
3: We have such a large GHL that we'll never, we'll never even come close to scratching the surface of of actually processing what we're allowed to catch. but you know that that's it's just a glass ceiling that'll never that'll never be broken.
2: The additional constraint on the Sacro fishery is timing. The herring have to be landed just before they spawn. In recent years, saners have tried to optimize a harvest by fishing cooperatively rather than in a free-for-all that may produce fish of lesser quality. Kinney says there's an element of competition this year, but ultimately the goal will be keeping processors supplied with the best fish.
3: You know, if we're constricted in in our area, then you might see a little bit of competition but it's it's going to be uh cooperative within uh processors but everyone wants that first fish and so it's going to be you know a matter of who gets them first and then once the plants are full then it's going to pretty much settle down to a, a very civil fishery
2: The first herring spawn was observed over the weekend in Sitka Sound. A Fish and Game aerial survey recorded 1.6 nautical miles of spawn between Inner Point and Mountain Point on Kruzoff Island and just across the Sound in Crow Pass. Herring predators, sea lions and whales, were concentrated along the Kruzoff shoreline from Biscary Rocks to Mud Bay. Officials with the Wasilla-based grocery and retail store chain Three Bears Alaska say they intend to expand operations in the state now that they've entered into a deal with a private equity firm based in the Pacific Northwest. KYC's Tim Ellis reports.
10: Three Bears Alaska owns and operates nine retail outlets around the state and one in Montana. They're mostly grocery stores, and some have gas stations or hardware or sporting goods shops. They're located in small to mid-sized communities, sometimes the only grocers in town. And Three Bears officials say we'll soon be seeing more of the stores now that the company's completed a deal with Seattle-based Westward Partners.
9: Folks should certainly expect to see more three bear storms going up around the state of Alaska in, you know, the next one, two, three years. Um, and that's what this deal was really all about.
10: James Cartalis is the managing director of Cascadia Capital, an investment banking firm that's also based in Seattle and that acted as an advisor and broker for the recapitalization deal, which it announced on March 17th. But Cartalis and a Three Bears spokesperson both declined to say where the new stores may be built.
9: When you're working on real estate deals and, and things like that, um, you know, you don't want to give away all your plans.
10: Cartalis and the company spokesperson both said in interviews last week that they couldn't offer many details of the deal for proprietary reasons. And that's not unusual, says John Nofsinger. He's the dean of the University of Alaska Anchorage's College of Business and Public Policy. In this particular
6: case, uh, we don't have a lot of information. Because this is a private equity firm, and they're helping to recapitalize Three Bears Alaska, which is also a private company. So they're not required to tell us much of anything.
10: (laughs) But Knopfzinger offered a few observations on the deal in an interview Friday, beginning with the definition of a recapitalization.
6: A recapitalization is simply a major, substantial change in a company's capital structure. There's different forms of capital. There's the equity side for a public company that would be like buying their stock. Uh, And then there's debt.
10: Cartalis says the deal didn't involve Westward Partners buying Three Bears debt, and the company spokesperson confirmed that the Weiss family, which launched the business in 1980, still retains majority ownership.
9: There's a diversified shareholder base of of Alaskans, and uh, they'll maintain Alaskan control over an Alaskan company.
10: Cartalis says that means customers probably won't notice much change in the operation of Three Bears stores, but he says they may see improvements as Three Bears continues to remodel its existing stores like it did two years ago in Toke. That's where the company was founded in 1980 and where it built a hardware store in October. In 2017, it opened its 10th store in Healy. As
9: far as this transaction's impact on them, It's going to be business as usual. There's no change at the management level. There's certainly no change at the store level.
10: Cartalis says customers shouldn't worry about Three Bears raising prices as a result of the recapitalization. Nofzinger says that sometimes happens when a private equity firm invests in a company. But Cartalis says greater economies of scale may even drive prices down.
9: As the business grows, they're actually able to
10: oftentimes
9: get better pricing from the national brands and the distributors and the suppliers.
10: Cartalis says some prices may rise because of inflation, and gasoline and other fuels may go up because of volatility in energy markets. But not, he says, because of the recapitalization. In Delta Junction, I'm Tim Ellis.
4: Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station.
5: The IBEW is the union of skilled hands and generous hearts, hardworking people on the job and off. It's the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the IBEW. This message sponsored by the IBEW Local 1547. The COVID-19 pandemic has created unexpected financial hardship for many Alaskans. Do you need help paying your mortgage? You are not alone. Now there is help. If you own a home, you may be eligible for Alaska Housing Homeowner Relief. The program may help cover mortgage payments, property taxes, utilities, insurance premiums, and homeowner association dues. The last day to apply is Monday, April 4th. Learn more and sign up at alaskahousingrelief.org. This message sponsored by Alaska Housing Finance Corporation.
2: temporary housing options are the main solutions Bering Strait Regional Housing Authority and other agencies have been able to use recently to keep the unhoused in Nome off the streets. But local residents may have also noticed a spike in people living on Front Street over the last few weeks. Part of that increase came from 30 individuals temporarily being housed at the Nome Nugget Inn who were displaced for a couple of weeks during the Iditarod. Colleen Dighton, the regional housing manager at BSRHA says those individuals were able to go back to the hotel on Friday, but in the meantime,
0: It's putting an added strain onto the nest, which is the gnome emergency shelter team, and onto individual families who are suddenly finding themselves with cousins, uncles, nephews, nieces, who suddenly need a place to stay for two weeks.
2: Again, those 30 individuals have returned to their rooms. Still, Nome and the Bering Strait region remain the third highest overcrowded region in the state. Dighton says in part due to the Emergency Rental Assistance Program from the federal government, the Housing Authority has been able to seek alternative options for housing in Nome, not just apartments, but using temporary shelters and even paying for monthly rooms at the Nome Nugget Inn.
0: Our own wait lists for the apartments that the Housing Authority owns are extensive, Every landlord I know is full up.
2: Some residents have proposed a potential solution to the lack of housing in Nome to repurpose existing rundown or abandoned buildings in the city. But Dighton says the Bering Strait Regional Housing Authority has too much red tape on its funding to make that solution feasible.
0: There are many, many derelict houses in this town. And people who are not in the programs say to me like, oh, why doesn't the housing authority just buy all the derelict houses and fix them up? And the answer is one, they're not for sale. People own those. And two, our guidelines for housing, because we're funded through HUD, have criminal background requirements, have credit check requirements, have former landlord requirements, have number of people in the house requirements,
2: The Noam Community Center is working on a solution to help alleviate some of the local housing issues and provide permanent housing for the chronically homeless. Johnson says NCC's Housing First Project, Home Plate, would establish a 15-unit complex on 6th Avenue near the baseball fields adjacent to the Gnome Rec Center. Based on the current timeline, the units won't be open until 2024. The Housing First project, plus the relief provided by the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, can only address part of Gnome's housing crisis, not solve the long-standing issues. And Dayton says the federal rent relief money will stop by the end of this year, at which point all of the unhoused temporarily staying at the Gnome Nugget Inn will once again be searching for scarce housing in Nome. The Richardson Highway between Fairbanks and the Moncho Mine near Tetlin will be studied this summer for traffic impacts and safety. The mine's ore trucks will travel the 240 mile corridor to get the ore to the ore processing mill. KYC's Robin reports.
11: There's been a lot of public concern about the plan for heavily laden ore trucks traveling the hundreds of miles between the mine south of Toke and the milling facility at Fort Knox, just north of Fairbanks on the Steese Highway. In a Friday afternoon release... The Alaska Department of Transportation and Public Facilities announced it will perform an independent corridor analysis of the route. We heard a
12: lot of public concerns about the Tetland to Fort Knox Corridor, and so that's what kind of drove the decision to have this independent corridor analysis and Transportation Advisory Committee.
11: That's Danielle Tessen, spokesperson for the northern region of DOTPF. She says parameters for the study will be released soon and much may occur this summer.
12: We're moving now for the independent corridor analysis. We're going to bring on a consultant to focus on the Tetlin to Fort Knox corridor. And we're going to move quickly with this, so we're going to put that out soon.
11: The Moncho mine is on land owned by the native village of Tetlin. Kinross Fort Knox owns 70 percent of the lease and Contango Ore has a 30 percent interest. Production and ore hauling are not expected to start until late 2024. In the meantime, Ken Ross has had several community meetings in Fairbanks, Toke, and Delta, explaining the 24-7 plan that calls for running two to four double-trailer trucks per hour in each direction along the 240-mile Alcan, Richardson, and Steese Highway route between the mine and the mill. DOTPF has no obligation to intervene in commerce except traffic safety, and Tesson says no specific pressure from opponents or supporters of the trucking plan Triggered the corridor study. But earlier this month, the trucking plan was heard in the legislature by the Joint House Transportation and Resources Committee. They heard from Kinross Fort Knox officials, Tetland's chief, and members of an ad hoc group called Advocates for Safe Alaska Highways. Tessen says the newly forming Transportation Advisory Committee is supposed to participate in the analysis, review the work, and make final recommendations.
12: We have invite for that committee going out now.
11: The announcement said the committee will pull from a wide variety of viewpoints, including groups supporting mining jobs, or who might be impacted by the increased traffic, noise, and road wear. Mining advocates, Alaska Native tribes along the highway, and other local government representatives.
12: So our goal is to make sure that we have all voices heard, all concerns heard from many different representatives, We really believe in creating these partnerships and working together to um, help people analyze the corridor.
11: The agency has a new website for the trucking plan from Tetland to Fort Knox, where users can subscribe to updates. And a note here that Kinross Fort Knox is a KUAC sponsor. In Fairbanks, I'm Robin.
2: And that's all for this edition of Alaska News Nightly. If you missed any of tonight's stories, we're online at alaskapublic.org and wherever you get your podcasts. we had reports tonight from Andrew Kitchenman in and Juneau, Lex Trinan in Anchorage, Corinne Smith and Haynes, Robert Woolsey in Sitka, Tim Ellis and Robin in Fairbanks, and Davis Hovey in Nome. If you want to send us a news tip, question, or comment, email us news at alaskapublic.org. Our audio engineer is Tobin Shelby, and I'm Laurie Townsend. Good night.
4: Alaska News Nightly was made possible by...
2: ConocoPhillips, investing in oil exploration and production and working to create economic opportunities for Alaskans. Phillips Unlocking Alaska's Energy Resources.
4: The greatest compliment to a public media station is when a listener becomes a member. So do your part today by becoming a part of the team officially. Thank you for making a donation. This is statewide news on Alaska Public Media.